This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. So good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is Matt Chancy, and today this is another episode of the Tax Alpha podcast. Today, we have a special guest who is an attorney. Um, out, She's a crypto attorney based in Florida, but she is also bilingual, so Spanish and English, and she may speak some other languages that she'll tell us about as well. I don't know. Uh, it's Nicole LaFosse with LaFosse Law. Thanks for joining us today, Nicole. My pleasure, Matt. Good stuff. Well, you know, look, I don't meet many attorneys that I would tell you that have a fundamental understanding of the crypto space and what that entails and or, you know, maybe the legal aspects and ramifications around it. So how did you pick that business? How did you become an expert there? Well, I first got curious about the subject itself. I couldn't understand how people would pay so much money for a JPEG, like paying playing $500, which is lowballing NFTs nowadays. I just couldn't see what the value was beyond having an image that I could perfectly do myself on paint. But then as as I started researching what was the fuzz behind it and why people gave so much value to this image, I started finding a lot of loopholes, especially on the legal perspective of it. I couldn't like put together in my head, how could you have this amount of money moving in the blockchain and not have it regulated? regulated like how is there no laws established for for this financial movement that is going on at this time i mean where there is money there's problems and if there's problems there has to be a way to get some sort of recourse and as i continued learning about the subject i kept on getting more and more surprised about the lack of understanding that there was from the legal perspective and the very few attorneys who actually practice on this branch of law, but it's not even a branch of law, it's just Web3 law that is not really a law per se, but there is a need for attorneys. So I just started digging more, learning more, getting myself you know, informed with people on the space, talking to them directly via LinkedIn or Zoom or whatever. And then at that time, I had my day job which was working for a company, intellectual property company, where they acquired the um, intellectual properties of inventors and then we litigated on their behalf. So while I was doing that, I was also giving a couple of consultations on Web3, nothing big, something very like small, basic. And at some point I had such a big demand for people like asking for my legal advice on their investments. And it started getting more complicated within time. It got to a point where I said, like, there is a demand, there is a need. And then there is me, who's an attorney, who's an enthusiast of 
crypto, of NFTs, everything, blockchain, Web3. I'm like, let me take a leap of faith and open my own practice. I stopped working for a couple of months just to get like put my head down and study the hell out of crypto. I had to go literally to like the bare bones of what's an NFT, what's blockchain, what's a token, what type of coins are there. And then I just, you know, the growth in Web3 is so big that I had no problems finding clients as soon as I opened my practice. I had so much demand and so much like eagerness to hire an attorney who understood the lingo, who understood why they invested on something that is so volatile versus investing on something that is probably more secure. And that's pretty much how I got to where I am now. Well, I would say that the reason that people do that was because of the opportunity, right? If you were an early pioneer in the crypto, blockchain, NFT space, you know, there was a there's a huge opportunity always to be a first mover in anything, right? But I yeah. think what we've learned over the past few months is that there's also a lot of risk. We've had custodians go out of business or and steal people's Bitcoin and lots of other stuff like that have happened. And now all those people that were huge advocates for decentralized finance, right? Oh, we don't want to be centralized. We don't want to be regulated. And then when their money's stolen, they're like, wait a minute, we want to be regulated. We want to be regulated. You're like, you can't have it both ways. Like, what are you talking about? Right? So I think it's, um, you know, like anything else, it's the Wild West. There's a lot of opportunity in the Wild West. And if you can, you know, manage it in a, uh, in a risk mitigated type way, right? If you can, right. you can find the right opportunity. So you've mentioned Web3 a few times, and I have never heard that before until on the call with you today. So talk to me a little bit about the term Web3 and where that comes from, because I personally am unfamiliar. Sure. So Web3 is pretty much buying digital assets, ownership of digital assets. Like, say, for instance, Web2 was when we just first learned about Internet. We had that little circle going around till you waited for the Internet to connect. Then we got Web2, which is Facebook, Twitter, all the interactive social media that we know of. And then Web3 went ahead and took all that history and added the ownership of digital assets. And then those assets now have intellectual property rights, have copyrights, trademarks. So before, back in Web 2, which is what we're currently living in right now, you could say you're playing a video game and you buy a sword. If you bought that sword, but the video game decided to close up, then there goes your sword, right? That you paid for, but you never owned. Now you have the option of if you buy this sword and a video game, the video game can close up, but you still own that sword and you can use it on another video game if the token is, you know, encoded for you to use it cross-platform, meaning you use it from one video game and then you can transfer it to another video game, regardless of whether the video game you purchase it from is still running or not. So in a similar manner, to put it in layman's terms, is like buying a pair of sneakers. Say you buy a pair of Nikes. If Nike goes bankrupt, that doesn't mean your sneaker disappears. I mean, we're talking about a physical shoe, right? Sure. Your Nike doesn't stop being your Nike. You already paid for it. It's yours, regardless of whether Nike still exists or not. So this is similar to buying digital assets. Once you buy a digital sneaker, that's yours. It doesn't matter what, what happens to the company. That sneaker is yours. You acquire that ownership on a digital asset. And that's pretty much Web3. Interesting. So we're going to see people running around with swords they bought in Fortnite in the metaverse. 
it's already happening and there's a bunch of lawsuits um going on nike had a lawsuit for the sneakers someone tried to use the the swap sign with another sneaker that they designed gucci has gucci actually won a trademark and prada won a trademark um infringement suit not suit violation actually Uh, where someone else wanted to register a trademark for the Gucci and the Prada products in the metaverse. And Prada said, hey, wait a second. This is my trademark. Although we haven't registered for metaverse retail store, this is still our brand. So they won that fight. It would make sense that they would win that fight from my perspective. Maybe I'm missing part of it, right? But what I've, and look, I wouldn't tell you that I'm the most tech sophisticated person in the world, but what I was always taught about tech is, if you can learn to do something in the physical, in the real world, like then you might be able to extend that product, service, or solution into the digital world, right? So like, for example, if I can't have this conversation with you face-to-face, person-to-person over like lunch, then I probably can't do it over Zoom using the technology. It's just an iteration of something I would have to be able to do face-to-face, belly-to-belly. So if I own the trademark or if I own the brand in the real world, I would just have to believe that I would own that trademark or that brand, even if it were on the moon, per se, like or on a digital metaverse version of the moon. Right. Yeah. No, and I agree 100 percent. But to be honest, the way I like to practice law in Web3 is to assume that no one knows anything. To assume that the least amount of information from any individual involved in this ecosystem, meaning for me, it makes sense what you just said, but I always assume that someone else doesn't, that someone else thinks that because Gucci is, say, not yet in the metaverse, then I'm able to register it in the metaverse because their trademark is for physical retail. So there's always someone whose logic doesn't add up to what it should be because logic at the end of the day is very subjective. Like common sense is the least common. And especially when it comes to web three, things are just crazy. And it's a lot of fun to me because I don't practice as a typical attorney. I become very creative. I become very, how can I put it? A lot of the things that I visualize as a legal consequence would never happen in real life. So the strategy that I pose to some of my clients are strategies that I would never pose in real life, but for Web3 being what it is now. Sure. Makes sense. Okay. Well, so good. Okay. So I understand now I have a little bit of an understanding of what Web3 is and hope the audience does too. That's a great explanation. Thank you. And I can only imagine it's kind of the wild west. And we say all the time that common sense isn't so common anymore. There's a bunch of, the world has created a bunch of crazy people these days and I don't know why. So what type of work are, you know, if we're in decentralized finance and we're talking about these trademarks of big established brands, and now people are trying to gain their foothold in this new real estate per se, if you, if you interpret it that way, right. As real estate, right. Like what are you doing for people? What are they trying? Give me examples. Cause I think this is where it's going to get really interesting. What are people trying to do with this new real estate that makes it so unique or so uncommon? So the question is very broad, but I'll try to answer it the best I can, because it's like, when you say real estate, you mean Web3, or do you mean like buying real estate in the metaverse, like in Sandbox or Decentraland? 
Well, I mean, anything that so every asset is some form basically of real estate, right? Like the yeah. swoosh on the side of a Nike shoe is real estate, right? That right. piece of okay. real estate on the side of a Nike shoe is real estate in that context, right? right. So okay. I'm not talking about physical dirt, but I guess so for me, the way I, and that's a great, you know, I'm talking about these people are trying to become a an owner of something in this mm-hmm. intangible element, right? They are trying to stake their claim to the likeness image representation of such a thing. So I was just calling that as a generalization, real estate, right? So okay. yeah. what are they trying to do? Why are they trying to do it? How do they think they're going to make money off? I have so many questions. I'm so curious. Yeah, yeah, no, it's all good. Interesting question, because the first thing that people think is I am going to make myself rich overnight. And that's a hit or miss. That's literally like playing game, like gambling, like buying the Lotto. You could hit it or you cannot. I mean, the difference is that instead of playing Lotto here and paying, what, $20 per ticket, you're investing a lot of your time, sacrificing family time, a lot of money. A lot of really hard work invested in here. And at the end of the day, it may or may not pan out. What will stand you out from the rest of the people who are trying to make it in Web3 is what value are you given to the community that they can apply in real life and also apply it in the metaverse, in virtual reality? For instance, a very simple example is I think it's it's Burger King, if I'm not mistaken, that they have a metaverse burger where you have your avatar, you're in the metaverse, you order a burger in the metaverse, and then they deliver it in physical, in real life to your door, to your house door. So you purchase this burger with crypto money, you buy it in the metaverse, but you get it delivered in real life. So, I mean, it's, it's a very simple example as to how you would set yourself apart. You've so, given me the opportunity to buy the, the real estate in the metaverse using the using crypto, not picking up my phone, not right. walking out the door, not taking my car, just ordering like if I am in an actual city within sure. the virtual reality and then ordering the burger and actually eating it. So here would be my question, right? What makes that fundamental? So what I'm hearing is I didn't get in my car. I didn't leave my house. I didn't pick up my phone. So it's convenience. It's ease in some way, right? Yeah. But wouldn't it be easier to go to BurgerKing.com or Grubhub and have them deliver it or order the app on your phone and just have it ordered on the app than to go into the metaverse and order the burger? Like, Yeah. So that's an actual, that's a very, very good point that you touch in there because the key here is that the retail stores, the commercial institutions like Burger King, maybe fast food, maybe real estate store, they're going where the consumer is now spending most of their time. So that's a business strategy altogether. They know that TV gets just so far. They know that ads in Google get so far, but they know that they can find a very good crowd of people where they're hanging out right now today And that place is the metaverse. So what retail stores are doing and what fast food is doing is they're meeting the consumer where they are. Whereas before, say, the strategy in Web2 was the consumer had to go where the retail store is or where the Burger King is. Or we had to move ourselves to go and get that asset, that real estate, that food, that dress, shoe, whatever. But now the consumer has, it's just like the places have, you know, switch, we have switched places with 
the commerce. Now, commerce is the one who's chasing the consumer, not the other way around. So if you don't have this burger online, you're missing out on all those individuals who are immersed on virtual reality 24-7 when all you need to do is just have some interest on in the space and get involved. Because now you're hitting two markets. You're hitting Web2 individuals like you and me on a normal daily life, but you're also hitting an emerge a, a community that is growing exponentially at a very fast rate in virtual reality. So if you have the resources to do it and you know what's happening, you know there is a financial movement going on under your roof, then why not get involved? So it's, it's a business strategy at the end of the day. If, if you're not involved in Web3 some way or another, you're missing out on so much because it's not even that hard. Okay, so here's what I heard. And that was a great perspective, by the way, because I, I definitely just learned something there. So here's what I heard, right? So I don't do anything virtually rally. I'm not into that. Like, you know, I barely like the real world. I'm definitely not going to like the virtual world, right? So um, too many crazies here. I can't imagine how crazy they are there. Like I read an article somewhere about um, people using the virtual reality stuff and groping people and sexual misconduct in the metaverse. So I, it's just, I was like, okay, that's a whole nother deal. There right? are sexual harassment claims on the metaverse. That one I could not believe. It's like- uh, well, it's it's people. At the end of the day, it's yeah. humans and doing human, dumb human things. They'll do it anywhere that they can, right? Okay, so here's the connection I made when you said that. So on Sunday, I like to watch NFL football, right? And so on an NFL football game, I'm there. I'm watching the TV. I'm watching my NFL red zone with all the highlights. I like it, right? Yeah. And on the bottom of the screen comes like a prompt for like Papa John's pizza, Right. With the QR code scan to the menu right on the bottom of the screen. Right. So literally, you don't even have to get it from the couch. You're like, oh, I'm watching my game. Papa John's pizza. They met me where I'm at. And they yeah. gave me the thing to literally instantly not even move off of the couch to pull my to pull the menu up. Right. Yeah. So that's what you're saying, that there are people that live in gaming and in a virtual world, they spend a lot of time there. So they're thinking, hey, I'm gaming, I'm doing this, I'm groping somebody illegally, whatever I'm doing. But all of a sudden I'm hungry and Burger King goes, hey, guess what? If you're hungry while you're VR gaming, I'm right here. It's just an ad. It's a commercial is what it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like literally putting a Burger King next to a gym. People go to work out, but then they get hungry. And if you put it in the right spot at the right moment, people are going to go there. Okay. You know, it's funny. I never really looked at it that way, but I can, I can certainly see that perspective. So you said there's people there. They're just trying to be where the people are. And you said, so here's what I don't know. You said something about the percentage of people that are living in the virtual world is growing exponentially. It's growing really fast, right? Yeah. So. Numbers and statistics can lie. And what I mean by that is if you start with one and you grow to two, you grew by 100%. And that sounds oh, like, oh my God, 100% growth, right? So if it's growing exponentially, that I'll buy because it's in the early stages of whatever it is. But let's talk about like um, numerically, what percent? So we have th what, 330 million in the people in the United States-ish today. How many people on a nominal basis do you think, based on your expertise, are actually kind of living in this virtual world and have some element of their life that's virtual like this? How many people are actually doing this? So 
on a number basis, I could not tell you what I perceive is how mm, I perceive it through my business. And the way I do this is one, I have, I have more clients than I can handle. And number two, being that I opened my law firm, not, I don't have like 10 years being a crypto attorney. I opened my crypto practice not that long ago, but I wouldn't have this high demand if I was practicing in any other branch of law and opening my own practice. That's one big flag that it tells me like, if there's high demand, it's because there's growth. Then the other one is right now, there's a lot of projects that are being put together that are not yet public because of strategy purpose, confidentiality. But the fact that I'm, I'm involved in things that are happening under the hood that are not available to the naked eye yet, that also allows me to see that people are coming with ideas that we've never seen before. Ideas in where you can meet real life with virtual life and help the user monetize in a way that you could have not otherwise monetized an asset. So you have retail opportunities, you have financial opportunities, you have a very simple example is uh, a crypto-backed mortgage of a house. So like a typical mortgage of a house, this one is, this is a mortgage that is backed up by crypto. Meaning if you have this amount of cryptocurrency, you can acquire a mortgage of a house in real life. The difference with this crypto-backed mortgage in an actual normal mortgage is that now you're able to afford a house between multiple people. Say you got five family members who individually could not afford one house. Now you can fractionalize this house and each one of those members will own a fraction of this house that can later be used for another mortgage if they wish to because they're part owners of this mortgage. And this mortgage is also, because this mortgage is embedded in the blockchain, because it's a crypto-backed mortgage, you could also use this mortgage that is embedded in blockchain to buy an asset, a real estate asset, a house in the metaverse, or just replicate the real-life house into the metaverse, and then, say, put a gallery. And now you're charging money for people to visit your house in the metaverse to see this amazing paintings that you have that could be NFTs, for instance, that could be, you could host concerts like Snoop Dogg has hosted concerts. I know Pitbull is very involved in it. Eminem is also involved in the metaverse. So say you could get Snoop Dogg to have a concert at your house in the metaverse that you own a fraction in real life, then you're having the good thing of both worlds. You're having a house in real life that you have a mortgage backed by crypto that you've grown through crypto investments that you could not have grown in normal currency because the normal currency investments are not as are not as volatile and with volatility comes big wins too big wins big lose right but if you win big then you made it on crypto right so we're here with this crypto-backed mortgage, you own a fraction of this house in real life. That means that you can put this house replicated in the metaverse. You're now charging for Snoop Dogg's concert in the metaverse. You're monetizing your house in the metaverse in real life. And you also have a physical asset in real life. 
that you can put as a collateral to invest on other things in real life. So taking this Web3 approach, say you got a typical mortgage and you can definitely buy a house with five other people, right? You can do this in real life normally. But the difference is that now you have this, um, you have this blockchain that is a ledger that represents your ownership on a digital world. So before with a normal mortgage, you could rent this house, but you need the authorization of the other four um, owners, right? Because you own it all together. Sure. Whereas if you own a fraction of this house, you own a percentage of more of ownership that you can do whatever you want without the authorization of the other members. Hmm. Interesting. So I would believe that the way you're describing this, well, let me ask a question. I don't want to make an assumption, right? So the people that are hiring you, are they people that were somewhat early adopters in cryptocurrency? And then the crypto, um, like you said, some people made money in it. Some people didn't lose money in it. It's volatile, but they made some money. And so now they have some crypto. And so they understand this space a little bit. And now they're trying to figure out what other uses they could possibly have for the cryptocurrency, because you talked about using the crypto for a collateralized mortgage on a traditional piece of real estate that they own, but then also being able to potentially own a house in the metaverse and have a Snoop Dogg concert there, which if it's a house in the metaverse and Snoop Dogg is there, isn't it a dog house? Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean you can definitely promote it like that. I'm sure you're going to get more audience even with that name. Welcome to the dog house, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good name, actually. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. There you go. But um, I would have to say, based on the way my mind works, and this could be wrong, that the people that are now going, hey, I was an early investor in crypto. I made money in my crypto. Now I want to know what other real tangible world things I can do with my crypto. Because just having this virtual money is pretty cool and all, but we don't live in the virtual. We don't eat that Whopper in the virtual world. We eat that Whopper in the real world, right? right? Like we go swimming in the real world, right? We want the water on our skin. We want to feel it all whatever, right? So like we're taking something that was virtual and we, we receive the pleasure, the benefit from it when we when we make it tangible, right? Mm-hmm. That's the way I interpret it. Maybe I'm wrong on that. No, right? no, no. And that's actually what's put apart projects nowadays than those projects that came about on the early stages. Before all, not all, but for the most part, what you acquired was just the token itself, the asset that is embedded in the blockchain without any utility. And when I say utility means what do you get in real life? What do you get in a tangible manner? How can you monetize? Can you make this your branding? Can you use it for your restaurant image? Can you turn it into a logo for your law firm, for instance? Before, you, you couldn't do many of those things. Now, they've added a utility to those tokens, meaning the non-fungible token, the NFTs, in which whomever is buying this NFT has the ability to build something from it other than just showcasing a picture of whatever NFT you bought. But so to answer your question that you just made, one of the reasons people are coming to me is because they know the market is highly volatile, but with this volatility comes a lot of success. Also, if you know how to navigate these strange waters, if you know what you're doing, you can measure the risk to some extent. And after you have measured that risk, you can put 
the investment and the potential profit on the side and say, okay, this is a risk that is worth taking because if I make it, I'm going to make it big. And this is a lifetime opportunity. Now, my role is to strategize this business venture and say, how can I reduce your liability exposure? How can I avoid you having government back push? And the way I do this is I play devil's advocate with each one of my clients. I say, okay, walk me through your project. What's your end goal? How you plan it to get there? I start seeing flaws. I start seeing things that maybe look shady, but not intentionally shady. It just, you're telling me this. And the first thing that comes to my head is like, this looks shady. And they get all like, like, wait, I'm not trying to be shady. I'm like, I know you're not. But if I see it shady, someone else will likely see it shady. So we need to put things in place or maybe structure it in a different way that it looks clean, that it looks more organized, that it looks more compliant to the laws that do not exist. And this is the tricky part, right? How to be compliant to a law that is not exist in existence yet? How to follow a procedure that is not clear? So one of the benefits that I've found from my career before getting into crypto is that I can anticipate some of the legal intricacies that may come down the road. Even if there's no like set set of law, if even if we have no clear precedent, no clear procedure, I can anticipate some of the things that might make you liable down the road because the law will evolve. You know, at some point, we're going to have something to follow, some laws to, to regulate all this ecosystem. And what I do is I anticipate that. I play devil's advocate. I, I literally trash your project and tell you all the things that will go wrong. They might not go wrong at any point, And God bless you if it doesn't happen, but it will happen. And when it does, you'll have enough ammunition to protect yourself because you've been very proactive since the beginning in putting processes in place and having the documentation clear from what you did from point A to point B to point C. How did you acquire this investment? How the funds were moving? What For what purpose? Where did the funds come from? And that's how you start putting a little bit of like liability shields down the road where many projects were not seeking legal advice on the crypto ventures, they think it's just like running any other business without having to follow any law. And that's super dangerous because you have a jurisdiction where you're operating, meaning you're either in the US, in Europe, Latin America, or Asia. There is a law that you have to follow. There are regulations that you have to follow that are not designed for Web3 ventures, but are applicable nevertheless. And that's what I do. I apply the law that exists right now and try to play puzzle piece together. Like I try to play mix and match. What law do we have in place that may be useful for the venture that we are dealing with right now? How can we apply this process into an existing law that is not applicable to Web3, but may be applicable down the road if there's another law that is coming into place in the future? So it's, it's being very creative at the end of the day on how to build all your ammunition for you to be protected down the road. Okay. Okay. Understood. So 
I mean, you probably have people come to you with, okay, if they're trying to make money in this digital universe, that's not based on just investing in a currency and it going up, right? They're trying to rent out a doghouse and throw parties there and charge admission or whatever, right? Like you must have people come to you with pretty crazy ideas about stuff they're trying to do that they think will make them money in the metaverse. I mean, is there any of that stuff like from a concept level, like maybe that you can share a little bit so we understand, you know, maybe some good ideas that you've heard and maybe some really terrible ideas that you heard or something? (laughs) I've heard a couple of terrible ideas, but not terrible because the idea is bad, but because there's too many of them. Like some people tell me like, hey, you know, I got this project here and there and this, we're going to make a difference on all the other projects. I'm like, I've heard that project like at least five times a day, every day. Right. It's not as unique and special as you think it's unique and special. Right. I'm like, okay, so sell me more because right now I wouldn't buy your project because there's tons of other projects doing just the same. So like what's in it for me as a consumer? So crazy ideas, uh, it's, it's hard because there's a lot of, confidentiality involved on on those crazy ideas sure but for the most part these crazy ideas come in this in the form of a voice note at 2 a.m that i i listen to in the morning when i wake up and it, they're so funny because these individuals are super excited they, they tell me they hey i just woke up sorry about the time but i know you're gonna hear it in the morning this is what's going on and i don't know if we can be done but if we can be done we're gonna make it and part of that idea is doable. Part of that idea is on the very red zone because it could go wrong in so many different levels. And that's a fun part for me. I love when we have crazy ideas because it means we are paving the road to Web3. Your idea could be the precedent. Your idea could be what creates the new legislation. If we do it the right way, your project could just very well be new new legislation and you'll create precedence with your case. Sure. Like we want to be sued because we know we'll, we got everything to protect ourselves and because we know we'll create very good precedent for the coming projects. Sure. So yeah, um, the craziest ideas have a lot to do with intellectual property and copyrights uh, in the sense that they want to give those rights on certain in a way that is not the traditional way of, of giving rights. And there's also the factor of you can always change this down the road, like Moonbirds did this, right? They first said, okay, those who buy my NFT, you'll have the IP rights, intellectual property rights. But a couple of weeks ago, they said, you know what? Everybody owns the Moonbirds. No intellectual property. So what you paid for your for your NFT that was highly valuable due to the scarcity of the IP is now like, you know, they completely completely devalued the asset. Yeah. But that's also a strategy, you know, because one of the reasons they did this is not just for monetization purposes on the individual owners of these NFTs. What they want is that they want this NFT to be so, to be at a scale that is global beyond the normal reach of any other NFT that has licensing and intellectual property li- uh, limitations in the sense that you want people to use it so much that the first thing that you think about an NFT is Moonbirds. Moonbirds. They want people to see it in the car. They want people to see it on the TV, on your phones, on your screenshot. 
They want to see it on your background when you're doing Zoom. And the more people use it, the more famous your brand becomes. So it's also a strategy to give all these rights away so that people can use it freely and that it just starts carving into your head the image of this NFT. It's also a way of branding, of growing your brand and having people recognize it at like on the spot. Like you recognize the Nike swoop, you know, that's Nike. Everybody knows that. So that's what they want to do. They want people to see this NFT and to know what it is at right there and then. So it, it's, this is what we're seeing in Web3, right? We're seeing brands trying to commercialize in ways that we didn't see before. And it's completely out of the box, not necessarily illegal. Well, it's not illegal. It's just not regulated yet. Sure. But there's the thin line right there. There's, that's when you start getting into dangerous waters. Like how much can you do outside the box that you're not overstepping some of the legal um, aspects of the jurisdiction where you're commercializing your brands? Sure. I've heard a little bit about the NFT stuff. I know there was a thing with a bunch of, um, and there's a word in front of it. I can't remember what it was. There's some apes or something that a bunch oh, of the board apes. The board apes. That's right. I knew there was something to it, but it was <laughs> something. Yeah. So a bunch of the apes, and I know a bunch of people paid a lot of money for these board apes, and then the valuation went kind of crazy. And then I think last time I heard something, I think the valuation of a lot of that stuff had kind of crashed, and those those board apes weren't worth nearly what they'd originally been worth. Is what I heard, but I don't it, know that it's been moving up and down. Um, but like like what happened to board apes is now the opposite is happening to doodles, which is another NFT where. They're now valued at $74 million, which is, it's amazing for them because, you know, the branding is key. Sure. So obviously a lot of people have lost money in the metaverse trying to start businesses, right? Because anytime you're trying to do a new venture in a new place, it's complicated. It's hard. Is anybody making any money in the in this virtual world in this Web three by doing so? Besides the big corporations that are just moving their marketing there per se to people that are living there, is there anybody really that you're seeing and experiencing coming up with great ideas that wouldn't monetize in the real world but are monetizing because of the technology of you know virtual reality per se? Are you seeing that? Yes, and surprisingly, I'm seeing it with kids with children. Children who have NFT projects, they have their, their galleries of NFTs. They hand draw each one of the pieces. They're not computer-based um, graphics. They draw them themselves. And they're selling their NFT collections in, in a matter of like minutes or, or so. And, you know, it's children. Children that would, if they draw it on a piece of paper and then they offer it to the neighbor, the neighbor wouldn't buy it. Like they'll see like, yeah, yeah, cool drawing, like nice kid. But because this is an NFT and they have a bigger reach of, of consumers, they're sure. actually making money and they're being entrepreneurs at an age where they cannot even contract on their own. They have their parents being the ones signing off on everything, but they're making money already. And these are kids that are like 10 years old, 13 years old. I would have never imagined I could do that at that age. Why would I want to buy some kid's middle school art project like because that mom really somewhere, cool. some mom has on her fridge somewhere, go, hey, look <laughs> at my kid. He's a little genius. He said, no, I'll pay you money for it. I'm like, ah, 
Yeah, no, but it, they're pretty cool graphics. I've seen a couple of them and they have nice designs. And what you're seeing there, if you understand enough how Web3 works and the potential it has for growth, you see this kid doing this NFT and you're like, this kid is going to make it because he's hitting all the spots that he should be hitting. He's doing YouTube. He's doing Twitter. He's making the videos of him showing how to draw it. His collection is being sold in a matter of minutes. So if he can do that now, imagine where he be there. Where will he be in a matter of like five years from now? He'll have the business mindset already. Well, I would I would say for me, the way I interpret that is, look, if we all we all have some unique talent, ability or skill, right? Some people can play sports. Some people can play the piano. Some people have artistic ability. Some people are great with languages and other stuff like that, right? We all have our own unique superpower per se. And mm-hmm. when you use a bigger microphone, right, which is what online or VR is, you're just telling more people about your unique ability, right? So back in the day, if you think about somebody like Mozart, who supposedly was really talented when it came to music, you didn't hear about him back because there was no radio stations, right? There were no records. Unless you were in the concert hall or whatever, when the guy was playing, you didn't know how good the guy was, right? Yeah. So if Mozart, if little baby Mozart's running around here somewhere today, banging out on the keys in his little VR doghouse, right? You know, then the world might learn about this person at a much younger age because their their distribution and their reach is just greater, much greater than it otherwise would have been. Yeah. And, and you have this reach at like right there at the tip of your fingers on a keyboard. It's a matter of you having enough interest to do it. You don't even have to have that much money to do it. Yeah. And back in the days, you actually needed a lot of money to do advertisements. Sure. Like you had to pay Google ads. You have to pay a graphic designer. You had to pay someone to say on the radio, on the TV. Now all that is free and it's a free resource that people are not using. And like, why not use it? You have it there. It's free. You could well, grow your business exponentially. If you're good at anything and you have a unique talent, right, at something, whatever that is, but it could be, you know, law or business coaching or, you know, whatever, right? But if you have a unique perspective and it's transferable, it's just a platform for more people to find out about it. And at the end of the day, we make money off of clicks and eyeballs and the more people that see it and know about it. And before, you know, records had to do distribution for artists, but today artists can release their things on YouTube and get huge followers and then to sell out their concerts from different stuff. So they don't have to have all those promoters and people per se in between. They can, they can kind of self-promote and this feels just kind of like an extension, but I would make the argument that all of the people that are probably doing good have some unique talent or ability. And for every person that does have a unique talent or ability, there's a bunch of idiots doing stupid stuff on there that nobody wants to see. Definitely. You know, but the beauty of it being self-regulated is whenever you see something that the community doesn't like, the community itself excludes that person. Like you could perfectly create another identity and jump back in and do the same like shitty stuff that you were doing before, but you'll be kicked out again. You have to rebuild the community, the followers and all that takes time. So when you're kicked out, you have to go back from zero followers to building again the followers that you had before. But the community itself, it it helps filter these bad actors to some extent because no one wants them in there and it's just easy to block them. Now, back to the example of Mozart. Think about the Mona Lisa, right? The painting. If, if you own the Mona Lisa, 
I can create an NFT of the Mona Lisa. And somehow, if you own the brush, you could have this brush be attached to the NFT. And whomever purchases this NFT, they'll have the brush of the Mona Lisa that you could not otherwise have the opportunity to have it, if not for the NFT. Sure. It's also a way of certi uh, providing certifications like Rolex. Rolex is now given certifications in the form of NFT, and you can sell this NFT without having to dispose of the watch. Hmm, so you're also, also having like the, this, the digital design of the watch that you own in the certificate on a blockchain ledger. But why would I, if I had that watch and I had the digital certificate that authenticated that my watch was my watch, why yeah. would I want to keep the tangible real part of it and sell the, like the papers or the provenance, right? It's what proves yeah. that it's real, that it's that yeah. it's mine, that it's certified. Why would I want to sell the certificate that says mine's real? What's Why would I do that? Well, you could sell it with a licensing limitation. You can sell it for you to use with your avatar, but you still own the actual item, the physical item. So you're now monetizing that watch that you're wearing by actually having someone else in virtual reality use the same watch on their avatar. And whomever owns this NFT has a license to use it, but it's not theirs. Okay. And you're receiving royalties every time that person resells that NFT. Okay, so I'm going to take the stuff that I have valuable in the real world, my car, my watch, my other fun stuff. I'm going to create NFTs from it, and I'm going to let people in the metaverse rent my stuff from me when they're in the metaverse, and I'm going to get paid for it. People pay for it. It's crazy. People pay for it, and then you create passive income because you can also add royalties to the sales. So if someone is reselling your car in the metaverse, that you own physically, you're receiving passive income every time that the car is traded. If you have a unique art, a unique car, a unique Rolex, you're receiving passive income without doing anything. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, Nicole, as fun and as it flies, time flies when you're having fun, right? And it was an easy conversation and a bunch of fun and learning at the same time. I appreciate you sharing. Um, you know, thanks so much for coming on today and sharing your story and the, the business opportunity that you found and pivoted into. And, you know, technology has always created change and it always will. And, you know, the, the tough part is um, leaning into it and learning it, teaching an old dog new tricks, right? Because <laughs> young kids feel like it's second nature and us old folks are like man why is this so complicated why are people doing that right i've seen a lot of white-haired ladies and gentlemen that are pretty tech savvy okay okay very tech savvy yeah like i'm like damn now you're teaching me something like i don't i i've learned not to underestimate age maybe older or younger because i've had so many different surprises from every type of person at any age, like a very young person, as much as a very old lady that looks like the grandma who's cooking the cookies at night, right? Sure, sure. Well, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Isn't that what they say? Yep. <laughs> very good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this was another episode of the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast. This is Matt Chancy. Today, I had, um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with crypto attorney, especially in the Web3, based out of <laughs> Miami, Florida. Um, Nicole LaFosse. Thanks so much, Nicole, for coming on today. We appreciate you. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And everybody, we'll see you next episode. Take care. 
thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 